It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's topic is something that I just recently familiarized myself with. And when Whitney suggested this topic for this episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable, I had an assumption. I'm going to own up to my assumption. When I saw this term, <laughs> my mind immediately went to something completely opposite from what it is. So I had to, I had to laugh at myself because as, as I was familiarizing myself, with the topic for today's episode, which is digital obesity. Before I read the research article so we can discuss it today, my mind went to that digital obesity is when you spend so much time on your devices, your smartphone, your computer, your Apple TV, your iPad, et cetera, et cetera, that you're so sedentary from sitting that you actually become obese or clinically obese or overweight, again, we're very touchy with these terminologies, as a result of sitting and being on your devices in a sedentary state. That's what I thought digital obesity meant, which I think is a reasonable assumption. As I detailed in an episode not too long ago here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, I have gained weight during the last 14 months of lockdown and quarantine and COVID and whatever else you want to call this thing, and, and I'm actually okay with it. So when, when you sent me these articles, Whitney, digital obesity, I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn about how being sedentary affects my weight gain. And it's absolutely not that. But I think I deserve some kudos because that was, that was a reasonable assumption. However, digital obesity is really interesting because as I was reading this, Whitney, I had to, not had to, I chose to look at my own behaviors and also the behaviors of other people I know, which I'll share anecdotally. But before we jump in, the actual definition of digital obesity is from Urban Dictionary defines it like this. Being digitally obese means that you're an information hoarder with a ferocious appetite for data. Digital obesity can be used to describe people who refuse to delete old or unwanted data in case they happen to need it in the future. The same can be said for people trying to fill 400 gigabyte hard drives with junk because the space is just, quote, there. Digital obesity also relates to software packages and apps that are needlessly large and overly complex. Super interesting. And it, it goes into these articles, which we will link to at our website, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll have the entire transcript and also the links to any articles, books, or further research resources we mentioned in this episode. But there's some interesting stuff in this article from Net Sanity. There's a great one from Net Sanity and also from The Guardian. And it talks about how it's slowing us down. It says, we're in an endless lock-in at the all-you-can-eat big bite, B-Y-T-E, buffet, and we've eaten the key. We're becoming increasingly immobilized by our mobile selves, screeching to a halt mid-stride, mid-sentence, or mid-sleep to answer the seductive vibration and the ping of another digital missive. We are becoming increasingly crippled by the devices sitting in front of us, 
at any given moment paralyzed by the mere thought of losing power or losing our digital connections. More and more of us are quietly and invisibly suffocating under the sheer weight of multiple personas, accounts, passwords, profiles, and screen devices. For some, our digital citizenship and our digital identity is crushing, both physically and spiritually. Damn. It's relatable. It's relatable because I, I mentioned a couple anecdotes, you know, with I have a file that I keep and I keep backups of that have all of my passwords and all of my access keys. And that is a long ass list. I mean, if I go through the sheer number of social media accounts, bank accounts, thanks to you, I'm starting a new crypto account. One more thing to add to the list. It's, it's a long list of things I need to access. But beyond that, I didn't even realize, as you and I bring up topics here, I don't know if I want to use the word complicit. I don't know that that's appropriate for this context, but I find that whenever we research new things and we discover things like digital obesity, I like to turn the lens inward and be like, oh, wow, you know what? Okay, so I have a three terabyte hard drive back there that's full on my shelf. The new MacBook that I got last year is one terabyte. That's almost full. I have Dropbox. I have Google Drive. I have Google Storage, right? So there's like five places, not to mention, I just went through my laptop bag and I have like six flash drive, like the tiny, like, holy shit. I didn't even realize how many places I have data and photos and music. It's like, damn. So on the one hand, before I pass the baton back, Whitney, like I take a lot of kind of pride in, you know, keeping my bookshelf organized and, and not having too much clutter. But if I take a really honest look, I have a shit ton of digital clutter. In reading these, I was like, damn, it was kind of that light bulb moment of, well, I think I need to do maybe a better job at managing this or organizing this. I don't know what to do about it, though, because I feel like these things are in so many places now. So I'm curious, do you feel this way? Do you feel digitally bloated? I, I don't know if obese is the right word. And because I'm kind of like in a little bit of shock now realizing at how much data I have just strewn all over the place. Kind of like when you, you know, you get off of a roller coaster and you feel sick and you just vomit everywhere. I feel like I just have digital vomit all over my life and didn't realize how much I had. Digital vomit. <laughs> well, it's a good term. And for me, I have to examine it a bit more because I have been very drawn to technology for a long time. It's been a huge part of most of my life growing up in, in this digital age as so much was developing has been really fascinating. And you and I, Jason, and many people within our age range have this interesting perspective of using the internet for the first time as it was evolving, using the smartphone for the first time, getting our first computers. Like for me growing up, there was one computer in the household for a long time. And it was like my dad's work computer I was lucky to use it. And it's also interesting to think about my mom. Like, I don't really remember my mom using my dad's computer. I used it for fun in school. My sister used it for fun in school. And then eventually we got our own 
computers, but unlike kids these days, a lot of them grow up with multiple computers and they get their own pretty young, if not a smart device first. Well, most kids will get a smart device first. Statistically, I don't know what that is, but that is my assumption that the majority of children that live in homes that have the money to spend on these things will give their kids these devices. And my experience of not having that, it's it's kind of like, I think we talked about this in the show, Jason, but correct me if I'm wrong, how if you grow up with something, you usually crave it. For me specifically, not only do we not have more than one computer for a while, but I didn't have a microwave. To this day, my parents don't have a microwave. We've never had cable TV, although now we have all these subscription services, so we might as well. And so growing up, I yearned for a lot of that technology experience. I was very interested in it. And I think a lot of kids my age were interested in technology. It was entertaining and it was also really helpful in productivity and efficiency. And I was very drawn to that. Plus, I have been creative with video most of my life. So getting a computer also was about editing videos. I remember when I was really getting into video editing in my teens, I didn't have my own computer and my dad's computer wasn't really suitable for it. He had a PC and it had like some basic things, but I don't think I ever used my dad's computer for that. And the technology at that time didn't make it very easy to put video into the computer. So I was doing deck to deck or I was doing, what's the term for just editing as I went. So as I was making things like short video projects, I would plan them out so I could edit as we went along, linear editing. And then eventually I started to learn how to use different equipment, but that wasn't even very accessible. I mean, the smartphones drastically changed things like that. We take for granted how easy it is to take a photo, but even remember... Before smartphones, most of us were using these cameras and they didn't have a ton of storage and you had to have like special cords or like it was just like a huge pain in the ass. And I think this is part of it too, Jason, is we've seen so much shift, but we've also, it's happened slow enough that we could adapt to it as it went. And part of me examining all of this is because of all of those years in my life where I didn't have those things, I still get very excited about technology. And then now, even though I try not to be addicted to efficiency and to productivity, I still like to save time. I still like to organize my life in a way that makes it easier. So I love using technology like software. And I just have a natural interest in it, like I said, or natural or, or learned interest in it. So I get excited by it and examining all of those things within me, Jason, makes sometimes it hard to notice these experiences that we have with technology. And I wonder how much of that is intentional, especially for younger generations. They're, it's just part of their lives in a lot of ways. You know, it's part of fitting in. It's part of being cool. It's part of being connected and I think a lot of us just have this habit of using technology as much and adding another thing. And we've also overcome, most of us, the barrier to entry. For me, it's like giving my email address away for something, no problem. 
signing up for a new service, no problem. Like I have a password manager built into my computer, a couple of them actually. So, oh, it's it's no problem. I don't have to remember the password. I just type it in. It's saved in my computer. It's good to go. You have your own system. And to your point, Jason, for security reasons, I'm taking some new steps. First of all, in the past, as many people did and some people still do, I had the same passwords for every account. And my password manager alerted me like, hey, you should change these because it makes it easier for someone to hack in. So I've been going through almost every single day and changing at least a few passwords a day, which is a daunting process. And to your point, Jason, it's shown me how many accounts I have. (laughs) And it's like, oh my gosh, this is annoying. But also, it turns out that I might need to go back again to those that I changed because I just read a great article, which I can link to in our show notes at wellevator.com about security, specifically encouraging people to sign up for two-factor authorization on a app. So not just using your text. So this is a good piece of information I learned yesterday, which is that a lot of people use two-factor authorization by sending a text to their phone. And then they type that number in that they get into the program to confirm that it's them, their identity. Well, unfortunately, hackers have found a way to hack that. So it actually leaves you fairly vulnerable. So using a program like Google Authenticator, I think it's called, there's a bunch of them. And I'll link to the article if you want to read more into this. That's more secure. So now I'm going to, as I'm going through and changing passwords, I'm also signing up for two-factor authorization just to make sure that the security is as good. Because, I mean, the other thing to your point, Jason, is when you look at all these accounts, you're generally not using them that much. Sometimes you sign up for an account and never go back, which I think is really dangerous because your data is just sitting there and anyone can hack into it. And as part of this conversation, I read another article about digital obesity. And let me pull this one up here so we can link to. This one is actually an older article, which is fascinating to me because I think it was written in 2014. You know, that's seven years ago now. And yet we're still facing this issue. This is on fastcompany.com. And one of the big points of the article is that every piece of information we put out, every picture, video, data, location we share, connecting to other people, that is likely to be monitored, collected, connected, and refined into usable information. And this becomes perpetual global surveillance. Not only will we be obese with information, but we will also be digitally naked, in other words, exposed. And I think that's really important for us too. Because of how easy and tempting it is to sign up for all these services and use all these tools, we give a lot away. And for many years, I was one of those people who was like, oh, I have nothing to hide. Like, I don't care. Like, who cares if somebody gets access to this? Like, the only thing I want to protect is, is my you know, financial information, but otherwise who cares, you know, like, but the more I look into this stuff, Jason, the more I care and the more that I think, I don't know if I fully feel comfortable. 
There's also this mentality, is it too late? Is it too late to protect our data? Is it all out there anyways? You know, are we already naked? Perhaps. But I think things are continuing to change. And as we just saw with Apple's updated privacy settings in the new iOS, it's actually greatly affecting platforms like Facebook that can't track your data in quite the same way anymore. And that to me is a signal that it's not really too late because if they don't have access to this ongoing data they're collecting about you, then that actually disrupts their company. And the fact that it disrupts their company is a signal that maybe we it's not too late to take control. And I think this is part of it, not just in how much we're using on a day-to-day basis, but how much we're giving away in the long term is a big part of this conversation. Talking about this digital bloatedness, I referenced a couple of things anecdotally I wanted to share. And one of them that I think falls under this umbrella, Whitney, is the number of unread emails, the number of unread texts, and the number of unread voicemails. Or depending on the platform, if you have a direct message capability, a la Facebook Messenger or Instagram DMs, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of inboxes and places for people to leave us messages. And there were a couple situations over the past few years that that I instantly come to mind. And I'll talk to, about my own process when it comes to like, you know, digital bloatedness in, in terms of messaging. There's a former colleague of ours. This was probably about three or four years ago. I was hanging out with her at the restaurant Olak here in downtown LA. And we were having a conversation about music and, and just hanging out. And she was showing me uh, a song she had recorded on her phone. And I just caught a, caught a brief glimpse of the number total because on on her smartphone the google you know the gmail program displays the number of unread messages you have i literally did a triple take and i said wait a sec can can i see your phone again and she kind of like smirked she's like why i said is that wait is that right is that total right and in her google inbox i'm not shaming her i'm i'm more like just surprised it was over 12,000 unread messages I'd never in my life seen a total. I'd never seen anything like that before. You know, I said to her, I'm like, how do you feel about that? She's like, oh, you know, I just, it's, it's out of control at this point. I can't really do anything. She had just, she had basically just given up at a certain point of going through 12,000 unread messages. And then a couple of days ago, I was also hanging out with a mutual friend of ours and, and I joked with her. I was looking again. She's like, oh, can you look up something on my phone? I looked at her phone and she had almost 900 unlistened to voicemails, 900. And I looked at her, I said, are you ever going to go through these? She's like, I don't know, probably not. So it's interesting for two reasons. How we prioritize what is important in our lives, whereas in these examples, you know, going through 900 voicemails, kind of not important to this person, going through 12,000 unread emails, kind of not important. But at a certain point, you run out of storage, whereas your phone or the system that holds your voicemails, or Gmail, you have to upgrade to a larger storage plan, right? So you have 12,000 unread messages. At a certain point, you have to buy more storage from Google. So it does end up costing you money in the long run because you have to upgrade to bigger and bigger storage. So that's a part of this digital obesity and this digital bloat that's fascinating. I feel like I've done a much better job because I used to be hanging around kind of that 
1,900 to 1,000 unread emails in my inbox. Now it hovers right around, I think right now it's about 150. So I've gone down to 10%-ish of what it used to be. Could I get it down to inbox zero? Yes. Is it a massive priority right now? No, because I feel comfortable with around 100 to 150 unread messages. That's kind of my comfort zone. But it is interesting how, again, if we go to the physical world versus the digital world, if we see giant piles piling up in our house or a bunch of grime or dirt, we're going to be like, okay, I got to address this at a certain point. But somehow many of us haven't adopted the same mentality when we have tens of thousands of unread messages like, I should clean that up. It's more like, ah, fuck it. I'll just get more storage. I think that's interesting how we don't treat digital clutter the same way we treat physical clutter. At least not yet. I think people are starting to realize how much of an impact it is. And this is something that I, I go through phases of awareness myself. In fact, I was just thinking last night, like I need to add that to my daily to-do list to organize and delete and make it easier for me and create a system. And I think most people don't have a system. You know, I have an email inbox that's for my newsletters and I check it once a day, but I only click on emails that I find important. And that's only a couple a day out of maybe like 20 plus that I get each day. So it's just building and building and building. And I remember years ago, I went through that entire inbox and did something with every email and that felt satisfying, but then it, you know, you have to stay up with it just like anything else. And I think for a lot of people doesn't feel urgent because they don't see it in front of their face all the time. Those, maybe those numbers they go numb to, and we just keep saying, we'll do it someday. We'll do it someday. I think what we can do in the present moment is, is two things. One is we can go on these detoxes, media diet, whatever you want to call it, where you step away from it all so that you can disconnect, you can set boundaries, you can you can choose not to take anything more at, until you deal with everything that you have. And I think also moving forward, being very clear of not signing up for things and being very intentional. In fact, that Fast Company article had a point that the question is not whether a technology can do something. The more relevant question is, should it do something? This idea of like, do we need this? Not can I have this? And I think this is part of the challenge and and a shift we'll likely see just simply from marketing. We've been given a lot of things for free. We have free trials. We have free versions of things. And that makes the barrier to entry really easy. I mean, you and I have free resources on our website, Jason. And and the marketing idea is if you give something, somebody a taste, or if you give them something for free, then A, they'll give you their email address. So some of you listening may have signed up for a free resource and you get our emails. And if you like our emails, great. But if you don't, we don't want you to have them and just clutter. I mean, most newsletters go unread. Like you're lucky to have a high open rate on your email newsletters, which is really bizarre. And yet I can fully relate because I do the same thing. I sign up for newsletters. And what happens, Jason, is I keep thinking, maybe one day I'll need this. And that's just like hoarding. 
I mean, it is hoarding, basically. It's like you're hoarding all of this data just in case. But similar to when you're getting rid of something physical, you need to get to a point where you're like, listen, I haven't used this. I just need to let it go. I'm actually in this place right now. Maybe it's because it's spring right now. (laughs) But I am very intentional, intentional about not acquiring things that I'm not actually going to use. And I noticed, Jason, that I have a tendency to kind of hoard things out of a scarcity mentality. And this might tie into the conversation too. I have this old habit, which feels a bit bizarre to me, of keeping things just in case I might need it one day and or keeping things because I'm afraid I won't get them again. So I'll like have a use a little bit of it or I'll use it every once in a while, but I don't want to like not have it again. And I'm pushing through that more intentionally by just using what I have and saying, it's okay for me to use this. If I really want it again, I can probably get it again. And if I can't get it again, then that's fine. You know, like it's okay. Something else will come along. One thing is I've accumulated so much tea and you know, I'm a a big coffee drinker. So I drink coffee every day, but I don't drink tea every day. Now I'm forcing myself to drink tea every day, Jason, because I've had so much expired tea and I'm like, this is so wasteful from a financial and from a material eco-friendly standpoint. It's like all of this waste when there are people in the world that could really benefit from having this or really want it. And here I am just hoarding it. Now, digital is different because usually there's an an abundance, if not an unlimited amount of things to go around, but it still ties into that same idea of like, why are you accumulating all of this stuff where it might be weighing down on you in more ways than you recognize? If you sign up for a newsletter list, read the newsletter. And if you don't read the newsletter, use it as a cue that you don't really want it. Just unsubscribe. You can use tools to archive the email. So that way, if you one day want to go back and read them, fine. But let's be honest, how many people do actually do that? This is part of the inspiration for our program, The Consistency Code, because we recognize that people have plenty of resources, plenty of information we, most of us have everything that we need, but we're not implementing it. And I think this is also the reason that Marie Kondo is, is so popular because most people have some sort of clutter in their life and have a emotional challenge reducing or eliminating that clutter. It takes guidance and accountability. It takes someone to say, hey, you're good. And we need to think more in the long term. That's probably my biggest solution here is like, what are the long term impacts of the way that we use digital technology and accumulate it. I want to go back to the point that you made about whether things are useful and really drilling down into what that means on an individual level. Because the one part of it for me, Whitney, is I, like you, I get very excited about digital technology. I get excited about innovation. I feel like I'm I'm kind of like containing multitudes in the sense that 
I've waxed poetic about my love for manual transmission cars and vinyl records and, and very analog technology, but I do get excited about certain digital tech too. If it's useful, and here's what I mean. For years, I wanted an iPad, right? Years. And then I was at the Wanderlust Festival and they had this competition where Tofurky was giving away an iPad and I won the iPad. And I was like, oh, I finally got an iPad. I wanted an Apple Watch for years. Then finally, you gave me your first gen Apple Watch. It needed to be fixed. I got it fixed, got a new screen, got a new band, used it for like nine months. And then I was like, this isn't really adding value to my life. So I was so excited about the theory of having something like an iPad or an Apple Watch. But for me, I realized that what I needed to accomplish via my laptop, which we're recording this episode on, and my iPhone, the things that I needed to do personally and professionally, I didn't need the iPad or the Apple Watch for me to accomplish the things that I needed to do. So I went down from four devices. Well, I still have the Apple Watch. I just don't use it. But usability-wise, I went down from four digital devices to two. Do I miss the watch? Do I miss the iPad? I don't. I feel like I'm able to accomplish everything I need with the setup and the interconnectivity between my laptop and my phone. That's me, right? So in this sense, I wonder, Whitney, on a pragmatic level of efficiency and usability, if there are just devices and tech being created that doesn't necessarily make things more smooth or efficient or productive, but they're just there, not solely to make money. There's some utility there. But for me, I want to give a a tangential example here. I was talking to our friend, Adam, who's been a great guest and a great friend on our show here. He talks a lot about digital minimalism. And Adam and I were texting this morning and he said, yeah, I'm not really going to use my light phone anymore. And a light phone for context we've talked about in the past is a very minimalist phone that's out there that you can basically only call and make texts on. Very, very minimal phone. And he said, I'm not using it anymore. I said, why? He said, well, the interconnectivity I need with Cora and with his partner, Pam and, and other things, he said, I just, there's no utility for me. So here you have a device that in theory, as a light phone, I'm not throwing light phone under the rocks here, but it's marketed as a thing that's going to simplify your life. But the people I've talked to, like Adam, who've used the light phone said it actually kind of hasn't simplified my life. It's a thing that's been created to reduce the usage of another device. So now I have two devices, but the device that I got, a la light phone, doesn't really make my life easier because I'm still using my smartphone. So now I have two phones. And is that really what we're going for here? By getting more stuff to take the burden off the usage of other stuff, but now we have just more stuff. It's a bit antithetical, I think, to the intention of minimizing and simplifying. It sounds like the devices, Whitney, that are being created to simplify our lives in some way are actually making them more complicated, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, me as well. And that reminds me of how it feeds into this overall desire for more. I mean, that's a huge issue. And and one of the biggest psychological challenges that people have, myself included, is not feeling good enough. But that not enoughness can also stem to increasing all sorts of things. In in the Fast Company article, they 
It talks about increasing the number of our friends. We increase notifications when we join new platforms. We get more news, more music, more movies, more devices, to your point, more connectivity. But it actually leads us to become very distracted and unfocused, and we still don't feel any better. Our lives are not improving as much as we think that they might, and the marketing is, in, is making us think. There's also a great line in the article that says, there's already way too much information available and it's way too tasty, too cheap, and too rich. And that reminds me of something we've talked about several times on the show, which is the book, The Pleasure Tra- The Pleasure Trap, which I believe it's been a while since I've read it and now I want to go back and reread it. I believe the book is mostly about food, but it's really about like the way our brains work and how we're, as human beings crave pleasure. And so we look for things that are tasty, you know, and that could be food, that could be technology. It's stimulating, in other words, it it feels good. And when it's inexpensive, that means that we don't have to work very hard. If it's free, even better, we don't have to put any work into it. And rich, I believe, is similar to tasty, as in like rich means that it's like full of, of something that gives us like a rich amount of pleasure. It's concentrated in, in other words. And again, as human beings, we're hardwired to look for things that require the least amount of effort, but give us the most in return. And yet all of this distracts us from the fact that we're not even that satisfied. We use technology as coping mechanisms. We use all of the this connection to get what we want deep down, but we're not really getting and, and becomes really sur- surface level. And so I think that's why we're not satisfied. And thus why it's important for us to reconsider all of this and change it. But I think not enough people have the structure and the patience to change, Jason, because it does require such a huge shift. We have subtly been moved into this world that we've experienced throughout our lifetimes, Jason, of like all the shifts that have happened with technology. We can remember what it's like before we had a smartphone. In fact, that that reminds me of a video I saw, I think it was on TikTok, speaking of technology. And this person had commented, wow, like I miss life before smartphones. It was like an old video from the 90s or something, right? And it's like, I sat there for a moment and thought, wow, what was life like before smartphones? And the creepy thing for me is I can barely remember it because it's such a huge part of our lives now. But remember what it was like to just go somewhere and not have that device in your hand for everything? Like when people would go to concerts, not, I mean, now concerts are full of people holding up their phones to record it. The majority of people, I believe, I don't know the the statistics, but I would be willing to guess that the majority of people who go to something like a concert or just do anything are using their phone to document it. And I think, was it Sid in one of our guest episodes recently, Jason, who said like, he would go on a run and he would bring his phone because he wanted to document his run. He wanted to show to other people what he was doing. 
And it's really strange. When you step back, like, does anybody really care? Like, do they even have the time to look at your Instagram and your social feeds? And if they do, like, the fact that they do have that time and interest in what somebody else is doing is just adding to more of this clutter and distraction. And in a way, it just makes me more and more just glad that I've been reducing the amount of posting I do on social media, Jason, because it's like, not only is it distracting me from my life, but it's encouraging other people to be distracted from their lives. And as we have been reevaluating you and I combined, a lot of the work that each of us have done over the years is promoting products that people will buy more product to try to fill up the void of emptiness and this perceived need that they have when really there might not be a need. There might, the void, it won't be filled by these things. And I think it's a big responsibility as a content creator to realize the role that I've been playing in that and, and just reconsider how I'm participating in the system. Going back to what you said, which I think is really so important about this desire to hoard which is an offshoot of this feeling of not enoughness. I absolutely have the same thing. And I know I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I have to just laugh at myself about it because I had the thought this morning. I'm, you know, I'm going to the bathroom and I'm on my toilet and I'm looking kind of at my whatever cabinet that has all, has all the stuff. And how much of that stuff do I really use? I probably use like 10 products consistently. You know what I mean? The deodorant, the shampoo, the toothpaste, the mouthwash, you know, maybe 10. Yet I have this shelving system full of, you know, all these, you know, alpha hydroxy citric acid, you know, face peel, this and that, the exfoliate your butthole, you know, all. <laughs> I have all this stuff that. Why am I keeping it? I'm keeping it because on some level, it's made me feel important. I got that for free. Someone gave me that thing. As an example, I was going through my knife drawer too, right? And I have this really beautiful, it's a cleaver, okay? And I got this cleaver years ago in a swag bag when I did the Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival. That was like eight years ago, right? It's this gorgeous cleaver. Have I used it once in eight years? No. So what is the utility in me keeping a cleaver, nice as it is, for eight years? Why do I keep it? Because it's some sort of ego validation of, oh, you were the first vegan chef in history to present at Pebble Beach. You should keep that because maybe you'll be old one day and look back on it and go, Oh, I was the first vegan chef in history at Pebble Beach. Look, I've got this cleaver I've never used in 45 years. Why? Why am I keeping this cleaver? It's ego. It's I, I, You're important, Jason. Someone thought you were important enough to invite you to this thing and give you this expensive cleaver, even though you've never used it in nearly a decade. And I say this because I'm also feeling you, Whitney. I want to have, like, even if it's painful emotionally... And I'm sure that it will be, right, uh, of this idea of letting go of these things that I don't even use 
that I'm keeping around because they make me feel important. <laughs> like, is some facial exfoliator and a cleaver I've never used going to make me feel like a better person? A more Some part of me believes so. That's why I've kept it. But as we're breaking this down, I'm realizing, like, why? Why am I keeping this stuff? Someone else can use this. But hoarding, you know, at the core, I don't think, I don't know if it's like the utility of it or as much as it is like, I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel important, I feel validated. And I wonder how much other stuff, Whitney, I'm holding on to for those reasons. Probably a shit ton, like probably a scary amount. And I think this is why minimalism is so appealing when you get to this realization I get so excited to go to travel. And for me, recently, it's been road trips. And one of the most pleasurable elements of is two things, especially driving cross-country. One, I recognized on the 2020 cross-country drive that I used my computer. I barely used it for, I think, nine or 10 days that I was on that trip. Barely used my phone because I was driving at least eight hours a day. And then I would get somewhere and be exhausted. And I I was only doing the work that I truly needed to do that was time sensitive. And I recognize that it did not require that much time. Plus, I have a small car, relatively. So I didn't have room for a lot of stuff. And I only brought the stuff that I needed and was going to use. And even then, which is something I recognize on practically every single trip I take, even when I feel like I'm bringing minimal amounts of items, there's still stuff that I bring that I never use. And I'm fascinated every single time. And I try to like fix it. I try to think, okay, this trip, I'm only going to pack what I'm going to use. But there's always something that I bring just in case. And that's because a lot of us have fear based on trauma, usually, or somebody else's trauma of going on a trip and needing something that they didn't have. And then you think, well, next time I'm going to be prepared and I'm going to bring that thing. But we're always rolling the dice. I mean, it could be some clothes. Like Actually, on my last cross-country trip, Leanne, who went on the trip with me, and we did an episode about this. If anyone wants to hear that story, we hit an unexpected snowstorm in the beginning of September. We never th- saw that coming. And it got to below 30, I think. And we didn't have the clothes that we weren't prepared for that. You know, we didn't have, I think I brought a hat, but I didn't have gloves, I didn't have a heavy jacket. And that was frustrating, right? So it's next time I plan a trip, I'm I'm going to do my best to anticipate, but probably I'm going to think, up. Oh, I don't want to be stuck in that situation again. I'm going to bring a coat, but knowing my luck, there'll be no need for it. And that's part of what's tricky. This is what I mean, that what if scenario that we're constantly facing. And I think it's just the scarcity. The truth is, Jason, if I really wanted to, I could have gone to the store and bought something and I didn't actually need that stuff. It was temporary discomfort. So in most cases, even on a trip, it might be in an inconvenience, but you could just go buy whatever you need on the trip. And plenty of people do that. And I think the same thing is true in general. Like 
once I make it through all the tea I have, there might be this moment of, oh my gosh, I don't have tea. What if I need tea? What if I want tea? But I'll just go buy more. You know, it's not that big of a deal, but I've made it a big deal in my head. And this also leads me to something that I was reading in the Guardian article, which we'll link to, is that in our supersized digital world, they have engineered a growing plethora of options, a curse that we seem incapable of casting off for fear of not being connected. And this idea of fear is tied into this scarcity mentality, like I won't have what I need, or I won't be connected to the right people, or I'm going to miss out on something because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. And that really messes with our minds. Something else, I, I don't think you read this exact word, but or maybe this was in the other article, actually, because the other co- article quoted this. But I'm going to say it again, just even to emphasize this one line that more and more of us are quietly and invisibly suffocating under the sheer weight of multiple personas, accounts, passwords, profiles, and screen devices. For some, digital citizenship is crushing both physically and spiritually. And I love this visual of suffocating because it's incredibly unpleasant. I love the visual of the weight of all the accounts, the passwords, the profiles, the devices, all these things that we've talked about. And I love that term digital citizenship because it basically says like in order to be part of something, to be a citizen in this current world, we sacrifice a lot. And I think that we're so used to it, Jason, that we don't realize how much it's crushing us or we're so numb to it or we're just not aware of it. We're not paying attention because we believe that all the things that we get from this connection is worth being crushed physically and spiritually. But I also believe deep down, a lot of the mental health challenges we have are related to this. And all these people walking around scratching their heads. Why am I unhappy? Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why am I scared? Most people are going to technology to figure out versus recognizing that technology could be the root of the the whole issue. And obviously, right now in my life, technology is really beneficial. My whole career is based on technology. It doesn't seem like there's a single chance, Jason, that we're going to go back and give up all this technology that we have now. So it's not that unless we want to give it all up entirely and be citizens elsewhere, because I believe that there still are places in the world without access to technology or not using it, choosing not to, right? I'm visualizing this one island that I know of that like... People will, missionaries will try to go to, and it's incredibly dangerous, I think, because they're still using bows and arrows and all of that. I'll have to look it up in a moment. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jason? There's like missionaries try to go to this island and are often killed because they're so threatened by the outside world and they're disconnected. So nobody can reach these people. And it sounds like barbaric or something, but like it's actually kind of cool on some level. Like there's 
society of people living very differently from you and I, Jason. You know, and then there are people that don't have access to technology because of money or because the internet's not fully built there. And, and yet there are people that are on a mission. I think Mark Zuckerberg is one of them to get like the entire world with access to the internet. Why? Because he sees more opportunity there. I actually saw statistically, I think there's over 7 billion people on the planet right now. And at least 4 billion of them are on social media. I think that's the right term. I I can double check this, but I use that in a presentation that I used. So there's still billions of people that don't use social media for what reason? I don't know. Is it their age? Is it their financial situations? Is it their belief systems? Is it where they live? I think also statistically every 15 seconds, people are signing up for social media. Yes. Okay. As of, I think in 2020, there were 7.81 billion people and more than 4 billion people around the world use social media every month with an average of nearly 2 million new users joining every day. So I don't think there's any sign of stopping, but I think the trend that's evolving and continue to build, Jason, is people recognizing that something needs to shift and they need to be mindful for their well-being. On the one hand, when you quote those statistics, it seems less than I would have anticipated in terms of the sheer number of people that are using social media, but then also seems gargantuan when you consider 4 billion people. It's less than I would have thought, but at the same time feels massive. The thing about digital identity that flashed for me is almost like an alias or an alternate persona. As an example, if you take someone like David Bowie, you know, he had this persona of Ziggy Stardust on stage when he was performing, when he was doing his records, he was this asexual androgynous alien from outer space that came to earth to play rock and roll music, right? He had Ziggy Stardust. But then you had David Jones, right? The person. You have the persona, the alias, the caricature, and then you have the human underneath the character. And in many ways, I feel like what we have done and continue to do on social media is create these aliases, these alternate personalities, these stage handles. Like how many times have we, you and I, Whitney, met someone that we had an idea of who we thought they were from social media based on these alternate personalities, this public facing persona they'd created. And then we meet them and it's like, oh, you, you aren't how I thought you were at all. So I think a lot of people, not everyone, are curating so carefully these alternate personas, which are not separate from them. You know, I think what we project on social media or project on the world stage of digital technology is a glimpse into parts of who we are, but it's often exaggerated. It's often enhanced filters, lighting, angles, manipulation of their persona. And then you meet them in real life. It's like, whoa, shit, you're not how I thought you would be, whether that's their personality or physically how they actually look of like, Oh, without the filter, without the manipulation and the lighting and the angles. I mean, there's been many times I'm like, damn, okay. You know, I had to take a moment of like, okay, this is not how I thought this person would be. Is this dangerous? Potentially. Um, 
I wonder, again, on a massive level of psychology, you talk about the mental health issues, about how much creating these alternate personas, what strain that's having on us of whether or not we feel we need to constantly live up to that externalized persona we've created and the pressure to live up to that. When maybe we just want to, you know, show up to our podcast with messy hair and BO and I don't know, a tank top I haven't washed in two weeks. Fuck it. And on some level, Whitney, I don't know that it will happen. And I've said this before, but in my heart, I really, I don't know. In whatever happens next in this chapter of humanity, I would love to say this for myself and all others, that if we could just show up, maybe not with the BO part, but you know, the, the shirt we haven't washed in a few days and the messy hair and just like, fuck it, here I am. Here I am. I'm messy. I'm human. I'm complicated. And I don't give a shit about dressing up for you right now. I don't know that it'll happen. I think the pressure to keep up with the Joneses and have these manufactured alternate personas is way too heavy for a lot of people. But I'd like to see it. I'd like to see, you know, less perfectionism and more realness. Um, will, will it happen on a mass level? Who knows? But I think to your point, this is absolutely contributing to a lot of mental health issues is the constant pressure to live up to these alternative digital identities we've created for ourselves. That being said, as I finish my tea, if you want to give me any of your tea, Whitney, I'm always open to receiving more tea from you. But will you use it? This is, I hesitate to ever give you anything, Jason, because you are known for not using things. You are known for collecting things that expire in the back of your cabinets and refrigerator like that's that's a jason robel characteristic at least as of late i will say actually is one tea company that i wanted to shout out and we talked about very briefly on the show maybe a couple months ago is and i actually have it now is this lovely hibiscus tea if you're listening to the audio only, you can go over to our YouTube channel and see visuals. We are trying to shout out more brands at the end of our episodes now and often want to show you the visuals of it. Jason has tried this too. And the one that I have in my hand is an unsweetened caffeine-free hibiscus tea with no artificial flavors or colors. We met the woman that makes this on Clubhouse earlier this year. She is a lovely human being. She calls this a one-of-a-kind drinking experience that she masterfully curated using indigenous African traditional recipe. The nutrition benefits of hibiscus coupled with the exhilarating nature of this tea make it a must-have beverage for everyone. It doesn't say what the nutritional ben benefits are. Do you know off the top of your head, Jason? I believe hibiscus is high in vitamin C. Oh, let's see from the facts. Yes, it does have four milligrams of vitamin C. It does have calcium, 40 milligrams, and some iron in it. But this is hibiscus plus ginger, pineapple juice, lemon juice, and cloves. This company is based in Virginia. So if you want to support a small female-owned and operated company with a passion for traditional recipe... I highly recommend this because the woman that makes this is just a delightful human being. My product shout out is something that I've been using 
for about a month and a half now. I'm a big fan of using supplements. We actually, one of our very first episodes, Whitney, was about supplementation and why we think they're important and why we think getting your blood panels tested and all of that to optimize your health. So supplement-wise, one of my favorite companies is a brand called Symbiotica. And I've been taking their D3, their B supplement, their omegas. They also have one for brain health and mood. But I, I recently added this to my cart because I was on their website and went, ooh, this looks interesting. So hopefully this shows up. The label's shiny, so it might be a little difficult, but it's a organic longevity mushroom formula. And I'm a huge fan of medicinal mushrooms for things like immunity, focus, cognition, supporting liver health, and supporting viral defense. So here's what's in it real quick. Organic sunflower lecithin, coconut glycerin, sprouted almond butter. And here's the mushrooms, king trumpet, turkey tail, antrodia, like Claudia, my cat, maitake, rishi, and it also has organic green tea extract, vitamin E, vitamin D, vanilla extract, and organic cacao. So it actually is, it's a chocolate syrup with all these medicinal mushrooms. So I'll, I'll show you real quick. We've joked about doing a makbung here, makbung. And so it's called a mukbang, Jason. Oh, sorry, mukbang. Muk, sorry, mukbang. Well, all you gotta do is just squeeze a tablespoon into your mouth of chocolate syrup. It's mushroom infused chocolate syrup, y'all. Like, what? Come on now. So, I do a tablespoon of this every day, Whitney. And here's another thing I've made pancakes and waffles. Instead of maple syrup, I will drizzle the medicinal mushroom chocolate syrup on top of the waffles, and it's crazy. It's like prof waff, prof waffle. It feels so good. Wow. Well, I will say that you have mentioned Symbiotica, according to our records, four time, or three times, well, four now. This is the fourth time you've mentioned this brand. So you, you truly do love them, Jason. I don't know if I've ever tried their products. I didn't know how to spell it properly. So if you, the listener, would like to check this out, go to wellevator.com where we'll list the links to Symbiotica and this product that I looked up. It does look very pretty on their website. The bottle is incredible. What a great label. And the fact that it's chocolate fudge syrup, Jason, I think is incredibly unique. I will say another shout out that I don't have as a visual that I bought yesterday at Whole Foods is, and I'm second guessing how to pronounce their name because they say very specifically how to pronounce it. I've been pronouncing it Califia, but I think maybe it's Califia. They actually started writing it on their label, similar to Daya. People are mispronouncing it. Um, but regardless of the pronunciation, they now have a oat milk infused with mushrooms. And whether that's just to be trendy, I don't know, but it is quite lovely. And I too believe in the power of mushrooms, Jason. Now, I do think that getting them from a source like Symbiotica or Four Sigmatic, we really love them. We've talked about them before. Who else, Jason? I, I know I'm blanking on another great mushroom company. I really like Host Defense, which is Paul Stamets' company. And Paul Stamets is kind of regarded as the godfather of modern mycelial research in terms of how mushrooms can benefit the human body, but also remediate toxicity in the soil and the waterways. So I've taken his immune defense formulas from Host Defense. Yeah, but but I've I've never really used Host Defense to make like tonics. 
The other brand that I really like to make tonics with is a brand called Jing Herbs. Jing Herbs and George Lamoureux have some really awesome medicinal mushrooms. So like we say, we will link to all these companies in the show notes and wherever you feel like you want to get your medicinal mushrooms from. They're all great companies. So with that, I really want to set aside some time, Whitney, to, I don't even know, like try and consolidate all of the stuff I have floating around in the digital universe and somehow, I don't know, I don't have a plan yet for my digital bloatedness. I don't want to call it digital obesity. I feel like it's more like I'm just, I feel digitally bloated. Simplification You know is what that order. makes me think of? <laughs> what? That time that you came home, and it actually was probably multiple times that you came home and found that Lynx got into the cabinet. <laughs> so Jason's cat Lynx. I, has this happened recently? But regardless, can you tell the story of how bloated Lynx got? What did he get into? There's one time in particular where his body completely blew up after getting into something in the cabinet. I don't know what it was this particular time. I learned the hard way that you should never trust a tabby cat because they somehow seem to be particularly more devious than other breeds of cat. I should know this by now. Years ago, I learned the hard way. I didn't install any kind of locking mechanisms on my cabinets and Lynx would pry open the cabinets in my kitchen, find the chocolate, and eat the fucking chocolate. Now, chocolate is not a great idea for cats or dogs. Apparently, it's worse for dogs, but not a great idea for cats. And this fool would figure out a way to get the chocolate in the back of the cabinet, gorge himself on it, and then I would come home to find a lethargic, bloated tabby cat surrounded by chocolate shards on my kitchen floor. I'm like, you son of a... So what I needed to do, this started at my old place, Whitney, as you know, I had to install childproof locks on my kitchen cabinets because this fool would figure out how to open every single one. So now I have a strategic plan to limit Lynx and the other cats. So it hasn't happened in a while. However, the current challenge I have is if I have an avocado and I turn my back for three seconds... His brother, the orange viper, Julius Bartholomew Robel, will strike like a viper and t- like literally I cannot leave any, o- even, even avocado skin. He'll viper it. He'll run full speed, duck under the guest bed in my house, and I have to move the entire bed away from the wall to get the avocado out of the gaping maw of the orange viper. That is my current challenge. So welcome to being a cat dad behind the scenes. BTS of cat daddom. Do you, dear listener, have any crazy shit that your animals do? We'd love to hear about it. We could say, yeah, email us about digital obesity or digital bloatedness, or you could just email us about your bloated animals that get into your cabinets. That could be fun too. If you want to email us, our email address is hello at wellevator.com. That's also our website again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Yeah, shoot us an email, shoot us a DM on Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want. Let's talk about our animals. That's a fun that could, you know, we got to do an episode all about our animals. Maybe just we've never dedicated a whole episode about our animals. Fuck it, we're going to do that next time. We're just going to have a whole episode about the folly and the fun and the frivolity of our crazy wonderful animals. We'll do that in the future. And also, 
If you, dear listener, have any suggestions for future topics, we're always open to that. So hit us up, hit us down, hit us sideways, hit us any way you want to hit us. And we'll be back soon with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Until then, we love you and appreciate you. Thanks for your support and your listenership. And we'll be back with another episode every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday. Until we decide otherwise, that's what we're doing. Catch you soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.